0: Anybody
1: Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I'm the vice chair of the local party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this special edition of the Roundup, we have last week's virtual candidate forum for the Democratic primary candidates in U.S. House District 19 between Mr. David Holden and Dr. Cindy Banier. The forum was hosted by the Collier County Democratic Party and the Blue Gator Initiative and was moderated by the Collier County Democratic Party chair, Anissa Kareem and one of the founders of the Blue Gator Initiative, Liz Matt. There are a couple times during the debate where the connection of one of the speakers breaks up, but they are few and minor, and we felt that the value of the candidate's answers being put out into the community outweighed the minor audio hiccups. So with that, we will turn to the candidate forum between Democratic candidates Cindy Bagnier and David Holden. Stay tuned to the end where both candidates sit down with me and talk about an issue that is important to each of them in their campaigns.
2: This election, obviously, is an extremely important election. It is critical, critical to uh, our state and our country, and we have some amazing candidates running. So tonight is actually one of many candidate forums we hope to host, and we hope that you will join us as we move forward. If you need any information about the Collier County Democratic Party and how you can help, whether you have one hour a week or you can volunteer 10 hours a day or 10 hours a month, it doesn't really matter. We have a place for you, and we, um, we certainly encourage you to start volunteering uh, with us. Um, Tonight we have two candidates that are joining us, so I want to thank our candidates for, uh, number one, for running. It is not an easy job to be running in any, uh, for any elected office, but especially here in Southwest Florida. So I'd like to thank Cindy Banier and David Holden for running and for making the time to uh, join us during our candidate forum tonight. Congressional District 19 is in southwest Florida. It's one of 27 congressional districts in the state of Florida, and you can see that Congressional District 19 covers portions of Lee County and portions of Collier County. It's considered a coastal county, but if you look at that red line through the map on the left, you can see that that is I-75. So while it is considered a coastal district, it is not entirely a coastal district. It covers Buckingham and Lehigh Acres and Lee County, North Fort Myers, which are some uh, rural and inland areas. So uh, Congressional District 19 is more diverse than uh, it would first appear on a map. A little over or a little under 840,000 people in Congressional District 19. Most of them, or by just a very slim margin, 51% are female and the median age is 51 and a half. So that's kind of, that's just one snapshot of what the district looks like. Just a couple rules uh, to go over for everybody's sake. Each candidate will have two minutes for introductions. Each candidate may take up to two minutes to answer each question. They don't have to, but they are allowed two minutes for each uh, question. And if they want, 45 seconds for rebuttals will be permitted. At the end of the forum, each candidate again will have two minutes for closing. And with that, we are going to begin. Dr. Cindy Banier, would you like to go ahead and give us
3: your opening? Introduction, please. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for hosting this, both the Collier Democrats and uh, the Blue Gator Initiative. It's a fantastic opportunity for us to get together and talk about issues that are important to us. But uh, so, thank you. My name is Dr. Cindy Banyer. I'm a candidate for Congress here in Southwest Florida. I'm a mom and small business owner, and I'm fighting for our water our health and our community. I have lived here with my family. I chose to move to this area and I've started my family living here for the past 11 years. Community just a little bit better. Uh, One of the things that I experienced during that time was working with over hundreds of organizations and thousands of people across the region, really listening to what they say. And I told people that I am here as a researcher to lift your voice up to be on the same level as CEOs and politicians. What I would do is take this research to our leaders, and a lot of times they would just look at me and pat me on the head and send me on my way and not do anything about it. And that really compelled as I know that people in this area understand on in this community, and they deserve leadership that is ready to listen to them and be the servant leader that they really need. I uh, am also on uh, part-time faculty at Florida Gulf Coast University in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration, and prior to moving here in Southwest Florida, I was a, uh, a consultant with the Japanese government, helping countries around the world, developing countries, become more efficient and effective and policy that works for people. I'm really passionate about making sure that we have a connection between the people and that the government is serving them and not the powerful. So thank you so much for having me here today. And I know we're gonna have a lot, thank you. Thank you very much, Sydney. Uh, David Holden, how are you
2: this evening? Would you like to give us your opening?
0: I am well, Anissa, good to see you. And thank you to the Collier Democratic Party and to the Blue Gator Initiative for hosting this event. Uh, I am a very proud district leader of the Collier Democratic Party and a candidate for Congress again in 2020. Uh, I was the Democratic nominee in 2018. And with the help of a lot of people on this call in this room, uh, we made extraordinary strides forward for Democrats in Southwest Florida. Uh, That work must continue because the need remains critical. You know, remember how you felt, how we all felt the night that Donald Trump was elected president, uh, even though Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. Um, the despair, the shock, uh, the, the sheer kind of visceral terror at what the future held for us. We knew it would be bad and we could not have foreseen exactly how bad it has been and continues to be. Streeter and I, you know, when we regained consciousness, decided that we had to do something. And this is an extension of my whole life. My whole life has been about service to the community, to some idea, ideals larger than myself. Uh, So I just set out to meet people, talk to people, listen to people, most importantly, about what they cared about, what issues they felt were important, and how we could have a better representative in Washington for Southwest Florida, somebody who will bring resources to communities so they can solve the problems in their own lives. That's what people need and want. That's what I've learned. Nobody has asked me in three and a half years of campaigning for a handout, what they've asked me for are the tools to let them improve their own lives and the lives of their children's children and communities. Uh, that work remains to be done. Cindy and I have had the uh, opportunity to debate six of the ten, count them, ten Republican candidates, and they are, without exception, appalling. Uh, And already they are attacking each other uh, in ways that are really kind of despicable, even for Republicans. You know, Cindy and I uh, are presenting our views, we're presenting our ideas to the people of this party, and you will make your choice. And once you do, we will unite as Democrats to win this race.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you. Um, And I think that um, both of you talked about why you're running. Uh, I think that since 2016, politics, and I didn't think it was possible, but I think things have become even more divisive. Uh, Things have become um, more difficult to stand up for, especially here in Southwest Florida, where we feel outnumbered as Democrats, as people who actually speak for people who need help that want a living wage and want to live in dignity. It's really hard to make a point as a Democrat without it seeming a partisan issue and not just uh, an issue for the people. So um, Cindy, if you could answer this question, why are you running for this specific office in this specific time?
3: Well, the answer is that I Tired of it. I had been working with nonprofits, like I said, and we were muzzled to a certain extent. That's why, you know, I was uh, surprised to a lot of people when I decided to run. Not that I hadn't been doing work that we all care about, but that I was actually barred from speaking on it. And I just got to the point where I was seeing leaders who were really tokenizing marginalized communities who were not really engaging with the way that they deserve to be engaged. There was corruption. There was financial, tired of being ignored, of doing research that was meaningful, telling our leaders what people wanted and needed in this community, that we needed affordable housing and good paying jobs, and we wanted a clean environment and safe schools for our kids to do. And we wanted to not spend an hour in traffic to get there. it just over and over, it was ignored. And so I decided that this was really the time to run. Um, I was also, com- you know, so I wanted to bring that technical expertise in my uh, history to the sea. personally compelled to run because of the situation with our health. So many of you have heard the story of my youngest daughter who's just turned three earlier. She spent the first two years of her life in and out of the hospital with a rare she was fighting for her life. I was fighting the insurance company. And between my professional experience and my personal experience with our broken system, I had had enough. And I knew that we needed somebody who had these experiences that could and bring technical expertise to the community and the heart of being the victim of this broken system speak on that uh, and run and flip this district and reach people in ways that they haven't been reached before, so that's the here, why, and now for me.
2: Thank you very much, I appreciate that. And now we're going to get into the questions that everybody's been waiting for, the issue what? questions.
4: Did David can, get, get to answer, answer
2: that? Oh, of course, of course, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, of course you do, David. David, why are you running for this specific Thank you, topic?
0: thank this you. You know, the work is not done. It, it, it's simply that, the work is not done and the need is is more desperate than ever in light of not just the last three and a half years and the last 40 years of Republican policy, uh, but 100,000 dead Americans and a catastrophic economic collapse. Uh, but moral outrage is not enough. We need a moral vision and we need moral leadership because even in the midst of crisis, there is opportunity. That's why we're talking about building a new American dream together that meets the needs of working Americans, which is something we have not seen uh, really for a very long time in this government. We have a chance to rebuild our economy, to build a green economy that will clean our environment so we have something to leave our children and our grandchildren. Get back to the idea of the common good, when we live our values and share our values with each other. You know, many of you know that I'm a sober alcoholic for the last 17 years, and when I think about why I was spared when so many people die from this disease, uh, it's to carry a message of hope and to do the work of hope in my community to the best of my ability, and that's why I'm running right now.
2: David, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, And now, now we will move on to the questions about the issues that face our community. And Liz, would you like to start us off, please?
4: I will, and uh, I wanna thank you directly, Anissa, for uh, pulling this together for us. And the questions have come uh, primarily from members of the Blue Gator Initiative. And this first one is about public education. And I'll lay it all out, and then I'm going to ask Dr. Bonnier to take her two minutes, uh, Mr. Holden to take his two, and then if you would like to rebut, let's do it afterwards. In total. So, this is uh, public education dollars are spread thin, especially with the inclusion of for profit charter schools. They add nothing to the retirement fund for public school teachers. Charter schools don't have to abide by the same laws that traditional public schools do. Public school teachers are losing pay, they're paying more for their health insurance. And uh, our current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is working tirelessly on vouchers that give tax dollars to private schools. So how would you address this trend? And along the way, how would you address the esteem and value of public school teachers in this country? Dr. Bonning, we'll start with you.
3: Well, thanks for this. As a parent of two children who are currently enrolled in public school, I am very worried about these The disrespect and the way that the teachers are bearing huge burdens and have trouble living their lives and affording homes. So these are big terms for me. But I think from a congressional level standpoint, what we really need to look at is making sure that we are not allowing any administrator to be appointed whose sole purpose is to destroy it. That's been the big uh, issue with Trump in terms of his appointments, putting somebody who like Betsy DeVos in, who has built her entire fortune on charters and profiteering off of public dollars. This is something that we knew and we need to fight against to make sure that we actually have qualified people in these administrative roles. I think we also need to make sure that funding is Decentralized from the central government, meaning that there's local control and state control over it, but there's connections between them so that they are not being mismanaged and spent. I would like to see and make sure that we have federal dollars going into public schools and not private for-profit schools. Those are the ones that concern me very amazing local charter schools that are filling needs in the community. So I want to make sure that we're clear on the difference between predatory, you know, for-profit charter schools and other areas where uh, they're filling a need and a gap that wasn't there before. I want to make sure that we have strong teachers unions. I think that's something Looked in this discussion, we in the state of Florida have hobbled our teachers' unions and our uh, the DeSantis uh, and Republicans in this need to do so. And we need to make sure that federal dollars protect workers as well when they are distributed through the public education system. So, not making it such a big deal for that's teachers time. to join.
4: Maybe that's time. Thank you. Okay, David, um, your time to talk about public education and there seemed to be a great deal of concern about the for-profit charters baked into this question.
0: Well, they're, they're awful. And, uh, if you want to see what a second Trump term will look like for education, you don't have to look any further than the state of Florida. And this year, I think it's $700 million of public money, our tax dollars go into for-profit charter schools. It's a scam. Uh, everybody knows that. Uh, and some of the Republican candidates are profiting off of that scam. So we have to really ensure that public money is spent for public education. Uh, The federal government has to have a stronger role in education. They have to make sure that dollars are going into public schools. If we wanna raise uh, the esteem and value of teachers, then we need to pay them like the professionals they are. And in Florida, we should probably just about double teacher pay. Uh, We as individuals and as our party, to the extent that we can, need to support school board candidates that are pro-science, pro-teacher, and pro-union. We have to fight the right to work, or what they really are, the right to work for less laws uh, that undermine teachers' unions. We see what Florida has done uh, in assaulting the teachers' union. But underneath all that is, we have to end um, property tax funding of public schools. It is incredibly unfair. Uh, It is racist in its, Premise, uh, it perpetuates uh, poverty, it perpetuates uh, inequality, and we have to come up with a national solution to that.
4: All right. Um, Dr. Bunya, is there anything you would like to address relative to what Mr. Holden said? It's not expected.
3: I don't think so. I'm not, not on this, I don't have any particular rebuttals on this. Not that I would ever pass up time on purpose, but I think that we have a lot to get to.
4: Okay. Uh, Mr. Holden, anything for Dr. Bonnier? Okay. Anissa? Okay.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Uh, We're going to allow the candidates time to talk about their general positions and stand in relation to gun violence and the NRA. We know that gun violence has escalated exponentially in this country over the last few years. Um, My first uh, memory of gun violence was Columbine and for many others, um, it was after that. Um, but we know that it's an issue in this country. And year after year, we try to do something about it, or some of us try to do something about it. But when you're elected to Congress and you go to DC to support a Congress um, that is, um, you know, we have a President Biden in office, and you are a member of Congress, how will you make sure that gun violence is addressed appropriately in this country? And let's go ahead and start with Mr. Holden on that question.
0: Thank you, Anissa. Uh, I am, as I was in 2018, a Gun Sense candidate, uh, designated that way by Moms Demand Action. I've worked closely with that organization and have used their language and their information to inform my own understanding of the issue. Uh, You know, the NRA used to be an organization that was about gun safety and hunting and sportsmanship. I was actually trained in the Boy Scouts by NRA instructors in uh, riflery. But as we know, they're now a front group for gun manufacturers. And over the last several years, because of the you know array of mass shootings, there has been a shift, right? So I think that we have some momentum on our side, but there's an enormous amount of work to be done. So as a member of Congress, one of the key elements of the NRA uh, weaponry is the industry-wide liability protection for gun manufacturers. They are not, cannot be held uh, responsible in court uh, for the damage and the destruction caused by their weapons, um, and that has to change. And we also have to remove all military-grade weapons from private hands. Nobody needs them. Uh, <clears throat> they have no use in hunting or for sport, and they are the core reason that we have such terrible mass killings. So, you know, there are core things we have to do. We have to close all of the loopholes on registration. Uh, We have to hold people accountable for their actions. That means that if manufacturers uh, are their weapons are being used in the wrong fashion, we have to hold them accountable.
2: Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, Dr. Vanier, do you have uh a position on gun violence in relation to the NRA that you'd like to share with us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I am also a Moms Demand Gun Sense candidate as well. I'm very proud to have uh, earned that designation. Um, I will tell you that as school shootings, um, I actually grew very despondent after the Sandy Hook shooting. I, I really thought that if there wasn't something that was going to compel America to make changes in gun laws, if that wasn't it, I didn't know what it was going to be. Luckily for us, that is where man started out. And they have been a voice and an advocate in this space against the big, powerful lobby in the NRA. And David's absolutely right that they are merely a front group for uh, the the weapons industry, uh, a very flimsy front at that as well. And um, we really need to make sure that they are being held accountable, again, working towards closing the gun show loopholes, private sales, uh, making sure that there's registration in the same way that we have had registration for cars. I'm a big proponent of making sure that we have um, red flag laws in place because they do save women's lives, they absolutely do. Um, and I can also attest to that as somebody who is, you know, going through turmoil in their weapons involved, I am very happy that we have things like, gun, uh, you know, red flag laws to protect women situations. Um, I also like to take in consideration our manufacturing base around this. We do not, um, we permit for commercial sales high power weapons, and it really blows my mind as to why Um, I don't think that they should be sold commercially. I think they should be barred from being sold commercially, and we can absolutely tackle that from a federal level our weapons that we produce in the United States also fuel global poverty and suffering. And that's something we don't talk about as much as well. But most of the weapons that are used in conflict around the world are bought from the secondary market in the United States. So if we start attacking um, the manufacturer of weapons and the gross uh, disproportionate amount of weapons that are manufactured in this country, we can make streets safer, but we can make suffering in the entire world go down. And I think that that's an important position that we can take as global leaders.
4: Thank you, Dr. Barnier. Um, Is there any concern of either of you that you would like to comment on the other's uh, thoughts? Mr.
0: Holden? I'm just going to add, no, I'm not, uh, but I'm going to take a couple seconds to say we've seen the impact of armed white militias taking over state capitals with heavy weaponry while the police stand there very respectfully. And then we see what's happening in Minneapolis. Uh, You know, the gun, the prevalence of weapons of mass destruction in the hand of private owners has a real corrosive effect on democracy.
3: And Dr. Banye, final thought? Yeah, I'll add to that as well. Just briefly, I did my doctoral research in the Philippines. Philippines is a very armed country. I saw more high power weapons there than I had ever seen in my entire life eating dinners with fully automatic weapons on the table. I really do not want to see us move in that direction any more than we already have it. And that has to start thinking critically about the in our communities, the culture around it, and how we're going to bring people back to gun sense and gun safety when it comes to uh, weapons and the Second Amendment in this country.
5: If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support.
4: Our next set of questions are going to be on health care, and we're going to give different questions to Dr. Barnier and Mr. Holden, based on the things that you said to the Blue Gator Initiative on your meetings. And for those who were not in attendance, I think you will be able to quickly pick up on the threads of, of uh, what each individual had to say. The first question to Dr. Barnier, you had described, and you mentioned fear, uh, your experience with the Japanese system of healthcare, personally. So how would that work here at a practical level, and how would you debate that with the GOP challengers who are currently running if you are the successful
3: Democratic candidate? Yes. So the Japanese system, just by brief explanation, is a nationalized healthcare system with decentralized implementation and a sliding scale user fee with cost setting from the federal level or the national level. And so that means, for instance, as a student, I was paying and somebody who is fully employed may be paying more 200 or 300 depending on the size of their family. Um, so it's very uh, flexible and adaptable for people. Um, and it creates a culture around preventative medicine and access to healthcare care that um, is, is very helpful, particularly like now during times of a pandemic ways that I would look at integrating that would be in the same way that we are looking at rolling out Medicare for all through a Bernie style or Elizabeth Warren style plan over several years. What I bring to the table is not only the experience of living in, a, in Japan with this kind of um, system, but also having studied it from an academic perspective on it, uh, comparing the American system to it. So we would integrate some of those um, streamlining methods what the difference is, and why I don't always go to call things Medicare for all because I would actually like to see a system that is more than we have already. And the way that I would debate that with Republicans, that's a loaded question because I'm already being attacked for being a socialist, for having pro social programs, and for supporting progressive ideals. So I think what I would come back down to is coming back to the people. Everyone deserves access to health care that doesn't bankrupt them. No, watch their child suffer and wonder whether or not they're getting care or they can afford that care or if the care they get is going to make them lose their house. And that's, I think that is a compelling message for people. It's one that's resonated across the board for me. And it's something I can think we can really rally around as soon as we cut the legs out of this socialist argument.
4: That's fine. Mr. Holden, so you, you told the Blue Gator Initiative that you would like Medicare for all, but you have also stated it wouldn't happen all in one fell swoop. So how would you debate that with the GOP challengers that, um, that are currently running?
0: Well, and, and I think Cindy can confirm this. Uh, the Republicans' approach to health care is you're on your own, people. Uh, I think we've got the stronger hand by far. We have to play a long and a short game uh, on healthcare that ensures a win for the American people. We have to work in two directions. I will support, I will sponsor single payer legislation on day one. But, you know, if we have the White House and we have the Senate, uh, I still think that's going to be a very heavy lift initially. But there are things we can do immediately. We can strengthen the Affordable Care Act It's done a lot of good reducing costs and improving outcomes. We immediately have to implement a public option. We have to push for Medicaid expansion, like here in Florida, increase funding for community health centers and critical access hospitals in rural areas. I think we also need to reduce the Medicare eligibility age over time. And we've got to limit cost shifting and surprise billing. There are challenges to all major reforms, Uh, taking, Telling people they're going to lose their employer health care as costly as it is, when you talk to union folks, they've, they've fought and bled for their healthcare benefits. So it is going to take a tremendous amount of work to get us from where we are today to single payer. But when you talk to any expert in the field, people who are running hospital systems like Dr. Alan Weiss, the former uh, CEO of NCH, they all agree that single payer is the ultimate goal.
4: Dr. Banya, is there anything you would like to say back um, addressing your comparative programs or plans?
3: Yeah, I I agree um, with what David said about making sure that we are taking a measured approach to it and doing things in the meantime, uh, shoring up uh, the ACA. I will tell you right now, um, without Obamacare, I am not 100% sure that my daughter would have made it out of the hospital for the provisions in that and thankful for things like the elimination of pre-existing conditions uh, in healthcare, um, but we make this a measured approach over time and thinking about how we're going to integrate these components into the healthcare system for the benefit of Americans and not the private insurance companies. And I think that's that paradigm shift is going to be a necessary one as we move forward.
4: Mr. Holden, a final thought?
0: Yeah, one of, one of the things I like about being in a campaign with Cindy is I get to learn stuff. Uh, and I think that we, you know, with the Japanese healthcare and other models around the globe, uh, there, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are successful uh, universal healthcare systems in every other developed economy but ours.
2: Anisa, thank you, thank you very much. We're moving on to. Uh, Questions on the environment, and Mr. Holden, I'm going to ask um, the question to you first. Um, Mr. Holden, you've written that the Washington governor, Jay Inslee, is urging Joe Biden and congressional hopefuls to adopt his evergreen plan to address climate change. The evergreen plan is very complex, and it includes measures to cope with effects of climate disruption and to reduce the rise of global temperatures by cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, David, would you please tell us a little bit about your favorite aspects of the Evergreen, Evergreen Plan and particularly uh, tell us about uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions?
0: Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I'm very glad that uh, Governor Inslee was in the race uh, for president because I think he really brought focus to this issue. Which you know, if we don't deal with this, the rest of it uh, becomes very insignificant. What I like about the uh, Evergreen Action Plan, and it's 79 pages, and I urge you to take a look at it. Uh, amazingly interesting for the length that it is. But what I like is that it's a holistic approach. It's a roadmap forward in almost every aspect of our economy and 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 our environment. So we're not trying to separate. Uh, economic issues from environmental issues they are they are intricately related and have to be addressed that way but it is also community-based the solutions come from the ground up and that's the only way we're going to build a successful green economy is if we have community buy-in at the at the neighborhood level up to national and international levels Uh, but it also has specific things that we can do from day one of a Biden administration and they suggest around the issue of reducing greenhouse gases that President Biden implement the Clean Air Act uh, demand that his administration create rules around greenhouse gas reduction. And the Clean Air Act, if implemented, uh, gives tremendous resources to the president and the federal government to address reducing greenhouse gases. And I promise to mention this to uh, Joe Biden at the convention.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, and Dr. Banier, according to the League of Conservation Voters, uh, Congressman Francis Rooney had the highest score by far among Republican House members from Florida. Uh, that he came in at a 59 percent and this score was higher than the House average score of 56 percent. Many of us learned of your candidacy when you authored a piece in the Fort Myers News Press last fall about Congressman Rooney's record on the environment. Uh, you criticized his record And I'd like you to uh, give us a few examples uh, and ideas of the votes that you disagreed with.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I penned an op ed coming out against the greenwashing of the Republicans in this area, because essentially that's what this means to me. And I guess like a Republican getting a, you know, a better score. Of what was 56% or something um, on the environment compared to all the other ones who got much lower. I mean, that's you're getting a D as opposed to an FFF. So that that doesn't make any sense to me at all to praise him for moving up to a D. I wouldn't do that to one of my students at all. Um, but it's so funny that that was actually my unofficial campaign launch because I was in New York City united nations general assembly on behalf of the international association for community development where i am a representative of that ngo and i was there advocating for community involvement in development goals in particular and the sustainable development goals are the 17 goals around the world that we're really trying to coalesce energy around to solve the biggest issues that we have that are those interwoven issues from poverty alleviation to hunger, to climate change, to sustainable cities. And so it was a really fortuitous time that that had dropped right when I was rolling into New York City. I was trying to, you know, every rest stop texting on that. Um, But when I look back at Francis Rooney's record, I was dismayed by his absenteeism. So he voted against several um, climate uh, uh, acts, but most notably, he was absent for the Climate Action Now Act vote. That was a rebuke of the withdrawal from uh, the, the Paris Climate Accords, and it called to action uh, Americans and legislators to to really take climate change seriously. And this is a really big problem for me in this area. We are in the forefront of climate change. We have a lot of issues related to it, and. The, the fact that the Republicans want to greenwash because they brought in some dollars for Everglades restoration that really uh, still hasn't happened um, is, is, is a bore-able. like, and, and the, again, moving from an F minus to a D in my book and still is not. And you know what, we would know a little bit about Francis Rooney's record if he actually showed up once in a while.
2: Thank you, Dr. Vanier. I appreciate that. Uh, Mr. Holden, do you have anything uh, to rebuttal or anything to add?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Francis Rooney was the worst member in the House in his first term on environment. He shifted. Uh, I'll give him that. But I agree with Cindy. You know, going from an F to a D does not make you an environmentalist. Uh, He's gotten some good press on that, but he's really failed to to lead in in a powerful way. And he has the opportunity. Right. Once he announced his retirement, he was free to do what he wanted. Uh, on issues. And what has he decided to do? Basically not show up for his job.
2: Thank you. And Dr. Banier, any final words on the environment?
3: Well, you know, the other thing about Francis Rooney and all the other folks trying to be his, you know, predecessor or his, the, the next person in the seat, as far as Republicans go, um, they all have a terrible track record on the environment. And we should remember the the parable of the the frog and the scorpion, right? Remember what Francis Rooney is. He is a man who made millions of dollars in cementing over our environment and quoted in the Washington Post as saying, I can't wait to go back to drilling oil wells. That is the man. And this is where we're praising him for his environmentalism when he's going to go back and just to the tune of millions of dollars is just absolutely insane to me. And we need to look at the the Republicans seriously on this as well and say, look, who are we gonna get when, if if one of those guys get in the office here and make sure that we are galvanizing Democrats to get out and vote.
2: Thank you both. Uh, And now we'll be moving on to talking specifically about clean water. Liz, would you like to ask the next few questions?
4: Yeah, the very first thing you said, Dr. Bonnier. And you talked about the things that matter to you. Is water? Is the first word you used. Um, we would. Uh, this question was addressing Dr. Bonnier, but of course we'll have Mr. Holden address it as well. But uh, Dr. Bonnier, when you spoke to the Blue Gators, you um, uh, you talked about um, uh, that commitment. And we have a member of the Blue Gators who's been reading about the EPA deregulation of perchlorate. Have I pronounced that right? Which is a toxic chemical compound assuming this is only one of many of those how do we best monitor this
3: or if it affects us directly this the simple answer to that if there can be with complex systems like our water and our environment is to make sure we have strong regulations in the EPA again we have seen under the trump administration the 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 kakistocracy run wild Putting in people in level positions across our administration with the sole purpose of being the worst qualified person to run that administration to try to dismantle it from the inside out. That is just Steve Book 100%, and it's been horrifying for somebody who spent their entire career working in public administration and values government and values good government. So we need to strengthen the APA. We need con- Congress to continue to have oversight over the placement of officials and administrators high level in our government official government agencies. We need to make sure that the EPA uh, regulations that had been rolled back that hundred regulations that had been put in during the Obama actually come back and even stronger Uh, under the the Biden administration, this is really critical for us because it is our our health. Our water is our health. And the more that we have seen deregulation, the more that we have seen the hobbling of the EPA oversight at the federal level, and then similarly in the state of Florida, lack of oversight and lack of political will um, to go after polluters and hold them accountable, the, the worse off we are going to be. So this is, this for me comes back to being an administrative and a government governance issue and making sure that we have people who value government that are going to Washington the people of Southwest Florida.
4: Mr. Holden, um, on that topic, uh, well, we talked about governance and um, the issues of water as health. Water is also our livelihood in Southwest Florida. Everything connects to water in terms of the ability to be a successful tourism uh, world. So um, would you like to broaden that uh, beyond the EPA?
0: Well, I think there are so many uh, things that we're going to have to do immediately. It's going to be a very busy uh, term in Congress for one of us because we are seeing the fractures in our democracy, and that if somebody is willful enough to try to undermine it, uh, under a lot of the laws that we have today, they can do that. So when President John Kennedy appointed his brother as attorney general, uh, he got away with it, but even the Democrats thought that was a little dicey. So they passed legislation to make sure that that would not happen again in the future. So we're gonna have to look at an array of legislation and it can't just be regulatory it has to come from congress because the next administration could undo it so we have to make sure that that insiders who maintain huge financial stakes in industries are not allowed to regulate them uh, we're going to have to make sure that the president's uh, immediate family cannot serve in in the white house uh, and we're going to have to make sure that we cannot that the president can't game the system by appointing acting, uh, people to acting positions for long lengths of time. So there is a lot of nuts and bolts, uh, uh, un uh, work that's gonna need to be done in, in shoring up our democracy at that level of law.
4: So we've heard a lot about policy there, that's good. And I cannot imagine that there's truly rebuttal in there, but Dr. Bonnier, anything you wanna briefly add?
3: Well, yeah, I just want to say that it is, David is absolutely correct that we need to also take legislative action. That Congress serves as the check to the administration and the oversight, but the regulations that happen within those organizations are one component, but Congress needs to make laws to protect our environment and strongly do so. And we need to also make sure that the Senate So we could get those all the way through because there's a heck of a lot of them that are sitting there that Mitch McConnell just refuses to put on the floor.
4: And Mr. Holden, final thoughts on this before we move on?
0: Well, you know, I agree with Cindy on undoing the rollbacks, however many hundred they're rolling back right now of environmental regulations, but we're going to have to make sure that we keep a spotlight on that process, that it actually happens in a timely manner. Uh, Because for, You know, a new administration is going to be overwhelmed with a million things to do. But for us here in southwest Florida, there's nothing more critical.
5: This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot this November, and we need your help. We cannot do many of the things we normally do this election year, but there are still many activities that are safe and can be done from home. We need volunteers to help out with things like writing postcards or making phone calls in a virtual phone bank that will help us win in November. If you have the time to help us, Please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org, and click on the Get Involved button and become a volunteer. With your help, we can win in November. Anissa,
2: thank you. Thank you both. Um, So one of the interesting things about running for office is that you are immediately expected to know everything about everything. Uh, And certainly in these candidate forums, we ask you about an array of issues that are important to your constituency. But once elected, you actually have the ability to make progress on these issues. And so since no one person can have absolute knowledge about everything while serving, um, how how do you Plan to make sure that you're making decisions about healthcare, about uh, economic forecasting, about um, education, about any of these issues. How do you plan to make sure that you're making those decisions in the best way possible for your constituents? And let's uh, ask Dr. Uh, Banyer first.
3: Absolutely, that is actually something that I have learned throughout my career in social sciences, right? So social sciences, we learn to listen to people, we learn to observe, and we learn to connect and get knowledge from where it needs to come from. So sometimes those content experts are the local people. Sometimes they are the experts at think tanks. So I will always go back to the people of Southwest Florida to better understand what we need here. I will also rely on in their respective field. So I will look to institutes that will provide data and the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. I also um, am quite connected with uh, poverty alleviation and economics, like the Sustainable uh, Development Solutions Network that's headed by Jeffrey Sachs, who I'm a big fan of in terms of global poverty reduction as well. And the Brookings as well. Again, through my work with nonprofits and working with the SDGs and trying to local those sustainable development, localize those sustainable development goals, I've been connected to the Brookings Institute through that work and relying on the experts that they bring in together, as well as the convenings that come uh, with getting different ideas from different places. So I um, will very much be that humble servant leader that listens to people to make the best decision possible.
2: Thank you. And Mr. Holden, same question to you.
0: Yeah, I, I really like this question, Anissa. And it, you know, we have to remember the damage that Newt Gingrich, remember him, did uh, when he and the Republicans took control of the House in 1995. They, you know, they basically had an assault on expertise and staff. So one of the things that i put out uh Uh, proposal is to restore staffing levels for Congress to 1994 levels. Uh, In the interim, you know, the Congressional Budget Office is a source of honest, straightforward information regardless who is who's in control of the House. The Library of Congress will do specific deep dive analysis that members of Congress can request on any issue uh, with a broad range of, of inputs. Uh, As Cindy said, the Brookings Institute is a wonderful organization. There's also something that we need to rebuild in the House, which are called legislative service organizations. And the Democratic Study Group is the one I'm thinking of uh, most clearly. That's an organization from 1959 to 1994 that provided deep information on a range of issues to Democratic members of the House. That was funded because members were allowed to dedicate a small portion of their office budgets to that organization, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans outlawed that. Uh, And in spite of how we feel about lobbyists and how we feel about how lobbyists are funded, they too can be a great source of information on both sides of an issue. Because I think uh, it's critically important to take in perspectives from both sides of an issue because I don't know everything. And as Anissa said, it's impossible for anyone to know everything. So I want the broadest array of expertise uh, available to me as a member of Congress.
2: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Banier, do you have anything to add, any rebuttals?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think things like the Congressional Research Service are absolutely uh, imperative. Um, I use the Congressional Research Service during both my tenures in the, the Senate for both uh, Republican, uh, Senator, Jen- um, Uh, Spencer Abraham, and then Democratic Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Um, they were key components of making sure that we had the right information um, to work with to make decisions and making sure that those are and available to Congress and not um, derided, I think is the right word to think of. We have seen that um, experts and professional staff being completely Um, undermined during the Trump administration, and we need to change the culture on that. Thank you.
2: And Mr. Holen, any last thoughts on general policy and how you come to conclusions on specific issues?
0: Yeah, I think it's good to remember that uh, Francis Rooney has not had a community town hall since 2018. Uh, That's a critical part of decision making for any member of Congress is to get that open dialogue with the members of the community. That's what I miss most about campaigning. I love doing town halls and having a conversation with people where questions are not pre-screened. And that will be a monthly, if not weekly, component of my service in Congress.
2: Thank you. Liz, next question.
4: This question came from a member of the Blue Gator Initiative, who is a disgruntled, never Trump, former Republican. He has also worked in fundraising in um a uh, midwestern city um, in advancing various candidates he thought were good for those cities so i you have read this question in advance but i will read it for the benefit of the other 70 people who are with us the republican playbook is very predictable they will run countless tv ads to define our candidate as hopeless as a nancy pelosi liberal that is out of touch with average Americans. Uh, Fortunately, from an election strategy perspective, the candidate on the Republican side will need to be a Trump supporter, and we've already heard from them in their nightly commercials. Accordingly, our strategy can and should be equally predictable. We need to define the Republican candidate as a supporter of the most corrupt president in modern history, but that will take money. So how do you each plan to raise more money than your opponent And if so, how do you plan to do it? Uh, Let's start with uh, Mr. Holden on this.
0: Yeah, thank you, Liz. So in 2018, we raised almost $600,000, which was by far the most that a Democratic candidate has raised in this neck of the woods for many, many years. And we did that in amounts from $5 up to the legal limit. Uh, I do not and will not accept uh, PAC money, uh, dark money. Uh, And we did that so that we could get our message out. We are ahead of where we were in 2018 in our fundraising. We're closing in on $250,000 raised, uh, and we will continue. We did not raise money uh, significantly over the the last two months. It was just not appropriate. But we're starting to pick that up because we have to make the case. Uh, We know what the Republicans will do. We will get our message out, not just on television and radio, but digitally in all the ways that uh, the Democrats successfully campaign. Get out the vote effort, critical. Uh, We brought out 50,000 new Democratic votes compared to 2014. I outpolled Andrew Gillum by 16,000 votes and Bill Nelson by 13,000 votes. So something worked. uh, We are gonna continue to do the things we have to do to get the resources we need to put our message out to the people of this district, because what we have to offer them is a better way of life. The Republicans have nothing to offer but pain and suffering. And if you have viewed the debates that Cindy and I have participated in together, it is, it's terrifying their lack of empathy and compassion for the people of this district. People here are suffering. We're gonna get the message out that there's a better way forward.
4: Dr. Bonnier, this will be your first campaign uh, of, of this level. How do you plan to raise the money to tell your message?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's something to be said about coming in as a freshman candidate for this kind of thing. David had had a lot of time to fundraise uh, and coordinate his campaign well ahead of his announcement of his candidacy. And you know, when you have uh, your fingers in industries where people have a lot of means, it's a lot easier to raise funds. I'm a nonprofit, you know, person. I work with homeless people. Um, I am a part-time faculty, so I know students, people that I don't have a lot of money. So my strategy has been out hustle, out shine, out work. And that's what I've been doing from day one. So what I've been doing is making sure that I have a very strong and robust uh, team supporting me in terms of reaching out to people through um, virtual town hall meetings, now podcasts, Um, texting campaigns, calling campaigns, emailing campaigns. I've also uh, been going and getting a significant amount of endorsements. We'll be announcing some of them coming up as well. Um, Those will lead to additional funding. The National No Dem Left Behind Coalition, which does fundraising on our behalf and puts together really fantastic like the one I'm going to be joining in just an hour from now with Nick Knudsen of DemCast, who is a national supporter of Democrats, as well as next week, we are going to be sitting down and talking with Christine Pelosi. Uh, So those kinds of opportunities that are from networks that I've built from other people within this district and outside this district who see me as a candidate that is viable, even if I'm not starting with a pile of cash. And what I'm going to continue to do is, like I said, outwork out, outshine because that's what's going to make people uh not only in the democratic primary but in the republican uh versus the republicans in the general that is what's going to carry me through so yes i'm going to be able to pull down dollars to get those uh commercials out there i already have a commercial running on fox 4 right now i have another national organization called women for the win who is doing a pro bono video for me tomorrow as well sorry there's no time to watch but sorry thank you You know
4: what? Because we're already an hour into this uh, session, I'm going to uh, flip through a couple of questions because uh, we've addressed money here and go right to the question about how you each expect to motivate the African-American voters. Um, and since we're short on time, maybe take instead of two minutes, Dr. Bonnier, why don't you take a minute and Mr. Holden, a minute on that topic?
3: So I guess the quick answer then is that I'm going to motivate them through demonstrable commitment. So I've worked with uh, the Dunbar community. I've worked to help start up programs, pre-education, pre-K education programs in that area, worked extensively with people in there. I have a very close relationship with Mr. Mohammed uh, from uh, Quality of Life. That is where the, the bulk of the African-American population in this district is living. Um, and I have quite a few supporters on the inside who have been trying to uh, get some additional words out about me there. What, and what I told Lee Pitts in my interview, which you should be able to see on my YouTube channel as well, is that I am a humble listener. I want to listen and understand where people are coming from and bring them into the decision-making process in a meaningful way. Not just assume that I understand the the trials and tribulations of people, but actually listen to them and bring them into making decisions that will make their lives better. I am a humble servant leader.
4: Mr. Holden on the topic of African-American voters.
0: Well, you know, first, I think we need to recognize that that black voters are not a monolith. There are a number of different black communities throughout this district. Uh, when I met with Mr. Muhammad at the beginning of my first campaign, he yeah. asked me uh, yeah. one yes. question. How uh, I different, different from the last 12 guys from to come here and for their community And book. you can't answer that in and words. You can't answer that in words. Well, hold,
2: on okay. second, think, oh, hold on one second, David. i think one second, David. I think if everybody would please mute if would line, be, that would be that would be make sure you are muted please make sure you are muted please
0: that's weird it's weird
2: it is, it
4: is.
0: It is. Oh. <laughs> okay. all right all right let's spell that again let's spell uh, that again
4: yeah well, uh, you, we will pick you up at the thought that you said in your first campaign yeah, um, yeah so,
0: You know, Mr. Muhammad challenged me, and I I think we rose to that challenge. We built strong relationships with Black and and other diverse communities throughout this district. Uh, The Haitian community has become strong supporters of our efforts, and we're going to continue to do that. Uh, The Black communities of this district understand the stakes. Uh, I believe they're going to turn out, and I believe that I will and have earned their support.
4: And... We we'll continue with you, Mr. Holden. How about the LGBTQ community here in the 19th? It's, it's not a highly visible community, but um, it you know, I'm sure it's as robust as any other place, but it's not highly visible. So do you have any thoughts about how to make that community, the people and businesses more visible?
0: Well, I, I think the LGBT community are doing a really good job of taking care of business. Uh, If you look at the growth of pride in Southwest Florida over the last several years, um, I was on a caucus with the uh, Democratic-LGBT caucus this week. Uh, They are engaged, they are involved, uh, but there is work to be done, critical work. If you ask a Republican their stance on LGBT issues, they will say this, that they support equal rights, but that there are no laws needed. Well, we know from history that civil rights without legal protection are meaningless. So I will sponsor and support the Equality Act. Uh, I am an ally to the LGBT community. As many of you know, my mom and my dad, Harvey and Nikki, were gay. So this is, you know, this is personal for me. And it's something that I've been engaged with my entire life.
4: Dr. Banya, your thoughts on this topic? So I've
3: been working in Southwest Florida awareness and visibility around the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I was uh, helping actually another candidate here, Sean Williams, back in, you know, five or six years ago, spin up the the LGBTQ fund at the Southwest Florida Community Foundation. Which provided funding for um, youth programs related to LGBTQ, as well as elder programs, uh, which are a big issue here for us as well. Uh, I also um, was, uh, uh, you know, proud to see things like the Southwest Florida Harmony Chamber spin up. Uh, that help to provide visibility to LGBTQ plus, uh, businesses in our region. And you know, I think that I am also somebody who is uh, an ally in the community and I value uh, the diversity that they bring. And we need to continue to support them and we need to con- make sure that we have laws on the local level and the federal level that will continue to provide pr- protections for people in the LGBTQ plus community.
4: We have covered a lot of ground there in those two questions. Anissa, back to you. I think you're gonna wrap us up.
2: Yes, yes I am. So um, this will be the last set of questions before we go into uh, closing comments by both uh, candidates. So Dr. Bonier, this will go to you first and then Mr. Holden will also have a chance to, to answer this question. So obviously we would love to have a Democratic representative in Congressional District 19. That is what we're all working very hard to do. And after the primary, uh, one of you will meet the Republican contender. When you get to office, when you get to Washington, D.C., and you're sworn in, uh, if you could choose the House committees that you could serve on, which House committees would be your first choice and why? And is there a current Republican member of the House with whom you feel that you could potentially work uh,
3: with and uh, why? So. Dr. Banu first. Yes, thank you. So there are several uh, committees that I am interested in, but I think the one that I am most interested in is the uh, Committee on Oversight and Reform. And I think that has to do with the fact that I am so passionate um, having my career be an evaluator, looking at making sure that we are doing things appropriately, efficiently, and effectively. Um, I really value governance uh, and strong government institutions. And so I think that um, we are missing that check on a lot of times uh, against Donald Trump in this administration. So I am looking to be a part of that committee. It's a very strong committee, but I think that I have the right background to be able uh, to do so. Uh, and do so. when it comes to when it comes, um, oh, when it comes to uh, Republicans, I would say that I don't necessarily have a, a favorite BFF Republican in the House at the moment. Um, but what I can tell you is that I have a history of bipartisanship, as I had alluded to earlier, I've worked for Republicans on Capitol Hill, Um, I have been a staunch Democrat since then, let me just say, I saw it behind the curtain, and I didn't like what I saw. So I moved over to the other side. Um, but I, uh, I will say that I've worked, uh, in a bipartisan fashion. I worked on Capitol Hill during a bipartisan era. I've worked in the state of Florida building a bipartisan coalition of candidates fighting for um, voter choice and to make sure that our elections are fair. We had 51 candidates uh, from both uh, parties as part of that. Uh, and I've worked locally as well. So I would say that I have the ability to find people where we align and build coalitions to make change where necessary irregardant of party. Thank you. And Mr.
2: Holden, when you get to Washington, D.C., and you have the opportunity, hopefully, to choose House committees, which House committees would you like to be on and why? And is there a Republican member uh, of the House with whom you feel that you could work particularly well?
0: Well, uh, being aware that uh, in spite of my manifest qualities, I will be a freshman. uh, I think the committees that that are most interesting to me and that I think I have a chance to serve on are either Energy and Commerce or the Select Committee on Climate Crisis. Uh, Energy and Commerce has broad oversight of environmental issues and as we know those are critical not just to this district but to the entire world. And the other committee I think that I am well qualified for is the Financial Services Committee because of my professional background. Uh, One of the wonderful things that uh, President Obama did was institute a fiduciary rule requiring that financial advisors uh, treat their clients in the best interests of the client, which, of course, the Trump administration has overturned. Uh, I think that's a committee which which needs great reform, that industry, and I can contribute there. There are a couple of Republicans, uh, John Katko from New York and Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, who seem to have somewhat of an open mind. Uh, And I've always worked across boundaries in my life, my professional life and my community life. But I think we have to be clear as Democrats that sometimes we seek uh, bipartisanship for its own sake. One of the things where I think President Obama failed was to realize the complete intransigence of the Republicans. We have to force them to the table by being strong in what we believe. If we have the White House and we have the Senate and we have the House, then we have to pass bills that reflect the reason people put us in that position.
2: Thank you, and as you both know, currently Congressional District 19 has an absent member of Congress, both in DC and at home. We have no idea when the next town, well, there probably will be no more town halls from Francis Rooney, but we haven't seen one for a couple of years. So um, as a Democrat that represents House District 19, how will you divide your time between DC uh, and the district here in Florida? Cindy, uh, please answer that for us.
3: Yeah, this was always a concern for me from the very beginning of this campaign, because as a mom, people always ask me, you know, Somewhat inappropriately, I think, but they do ask me nonetheless, you know, what are you going to do with your kids and how's that going to work out? I had always envisioned doing a complete split session. So going to DC for Thursday, Tuesday through Thursday uh, for any in person sessions that needed to be, and then be back here in district. Um, You know, Thursday evening through, uh, you know, uh, Monday evening, uh, both serving the community, helping my family and uh, providing stability in that way. I actually see a really big opportunity for even increasing the amount of time that and connecting with people around Southwest Florida if we move to digital connections and digital voting in D.C., which I think would be a really amazing um, opportunity for us to keep uh, members close to their district actually what the U.S. House of Representatives is supposed to be, the closest representative of the people. So go to D.C. when we need to go to D.C. to connect with people when we need to connect with people, but use remote options so that we can be in district and serving people here as much as possible. Thank you.
2: David, how will you divide your time between D.C. and your district here?
0: Well, I'll be in D.C. when the House is in session absent any change, long-term change in the rules. Uh, it's not clear to me that they're going to continue with and even if they don't get sued out of digital voting uh not clear that that's going to continue but you know it it does offer some real flexibility that I think is important for members and for their constituents uh, and then the rest of the time here at home it's nice that we're only i think three hour two and a half three hours away by by plane so it's easy for us to get to this district uh, because you have to be here you have to be with your constituents, you have to be listening to their concerns. uh, And you've got to be telling them what's going on, not just the stuff that gets into the newspapers, but what's really going on behind the scenes. Uh, I think that's a critical function of a Democratic member of Congress.
2: Thank you. Thank you both for being uh, with us tonight. And in a moment, both of you will be given the opportunity to provide closing statements for the people that are still watching this candidate forum. I want you to think about the next 159 days and what you can do to make sure that when we elect people to office, we're electing the right people. Our victories and our losses in Florida are razor thin. Statewide, we can make a difference right here in Southwest Florida, not only by sending one of these brilliant people to Congress, uh, but also to elect people to the state house and to county commission. We have Democrats running up and down the ballot and these Democrats need your help. Every vote counts, and we need to make sure that all of us, when we wake up on November 4th, we know that we did everything we could to make sure that our democracy is preserved. So, no pressure, but it's 159 days, and we can make it happen. Uh, so, Dr. Cindy Banier, if you would take two minutes and provide us with your closing statements, please.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I. Um and thank you so much for hosting this forum to both the, the Collier Democrats and the Blue Gator Initiative. I think it was a very informative opportunity for us to, to, to talk about the things that are important to us and to demonstrate our candidacies uh, to everyone here. But I just wanna depart by saying that I really believe that I am the right person to flip this district. This is what I tell every single person I talk to. And I think it has to do with both the combination of the expertise in governance that I bring to the table the community connections and service that I have, as well as a few other components that make me a little bit more interesting and exciting than other candidates in the past. So I'm a mom and right now during this era of coronavirus, we need some love, right? We need a little bit of love. We need to reach out and give us a big hug and tell us that everything's okay. But not just in the superficial way, but know that they have the ability to change it and make Things better in the future. Moms will kiss your knees and move you forward and keep you going on. So I'm that mama that's going to give you a great big bear hug and help us get through these challenging times. But I also add in, I used to be a professional boxer. So I'm a tough mama. All right, I'm not going to go to these. Please push me over. That is not something that's going to happen. Every single one of these Trumpers that are out there running as Republicans, they're attacking me on Twitter as we speak. Okay. And I am not taking it. I'm not letting what they have to say derail me from the mission to serve the people in Southwest Florida. So if you want somebody that can take that, move forward, be strong, call out the bullies, yet be able to give you that big, warm, comforting hug, then send mama to Congress. So if you want to find more about my campaign, you can see me at Cindy for SWFL.com. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter at SWFLmom2020, Facebook and Instagram as well. And of course, donations, grassroots candidates like me need every single dollar. I am coming up, by the way, on a thousand individual donors, and that could be you. That could be the thousandth donor to my campaign who believes in me. We also need people who are going to volunteer and phone bank and help us with all these digital events that we're going to need because I am staying home, by the way. My daughter is vulnerable. We are not leaving. Our digital campaign is not ending anytime soon. So we need your help and support to get through this, to go to the primary and get through the primary, to flip this district because I know that each one of those Trumpers is scared of me.
2: Thank you, Dr. Banyi, and Mr. David Holden, would you give us your closing statement, please?
0: Thank you, thank you for organizing this, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us this evening. This has been terrific. Uh, I'm a Democrat because the principles of our party are focused on serving our community. Since 1932, when Franklin Roosevelt came in to office in the midst of a depression, uh, our party has been focused on justice, on doing the right thing for working families in America that is the message i bring to this race you know i said a little while ago that we have to be strong as democrats at the negotiation table but as candidates we have to reach across to people who have not been willing to consider voting for a democrat in the past Uh, and i think i am the candidate to do that as we know i brought out 50,000 new democratic votes compared to the last midterm in 2018. Uh, i won independence uh, and we brought in a number of Republicans. We had a strong Republicans for holding group uh, that led us to the number of votes that we got in the communities that we had an impact in. You know, I've learned hard lessons in my life, as we all have. And I spoke about my recovery from alcoholism. And I know that there are two roads from suffering, from real suffering, bitterness or compassion. I've chosen the road of compassion in my life as a leader, as a candidate, and as a member of Congress, I'm gonna use compassion to inform how I do the job, how I speak to people, how I listen to people, and how I help this community help itself. That's how I live my life, and that's what I believe. Uh, You can learn more about us at holdenforflorida.com. We welcome you, join our hundreds of volunteers who are busy running a digital campaign, uh, and I look forward to talking about issues that we haven't been able to get to in the future. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Mr. Holden. Thank you, Dr. Banyer. It was a pleasure to uh, have you at our virtual candidate forum this evening. Thank you for making the time and thank you for running.
1: All right, so we have uh, David Holden here on, candidate for US House District 19, fresh off his town hall performance with his uh, primary opponent, Cindy Bannier. David, thank you very much for coming on.
0: Great to be here, Jeff.
1: So, David, I wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you about uh, something that I saw in the Washington Post here recently. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, in his role as chief of staff for President Obama during the financial crisis, famously said that you should never let a crisis go to waste. (laughs) And I know it's something that you've talked about uh, quite a bit during the last few months, and I wanted to get your opinion on that sentiment and uh, maybe some of the opportunities that present themselves in times of crisis. Uh,
0: Thanks, Jeff. You know, first, I think it's important that we acknowledge, unlike the folks in Washington, certainly in this administration, the tremendous loss of life and the suffering, human suffering, just the scale of human suffering, you know, over 100,000 dead Americans that we know of uh, and untold suffering at, at the human level as, in terms of economic impact. And it's, it's kind of pulled the mask away from what we have recently taken to be uh, prosperity. And I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, uh, and, and meaning that it's, it's assumed if the, if the stock markets are doing well, then the country's doing well and you know the stock market is not the economy and it's certainly not a reflection of the human experience and what we're seeing is that we now have a country where we are okay with half of americans <clears throat> living paycheck to paycheck and barely doing that in many cases and this kind of uh economic impact there's no safety net left so very few people have the wherewithal to withstand the loss of income, you know even for a short relatively short period of time and certainly not over the extended period that we're seeing. And so in that crisis is the opportunity to say, you know now is our chance to talk about fundamental change, to build, you know what we're saying on our campaign is together we're going to build a new American dream that provides some support, tangible support to working families in this country. And and that just hasn't happened for a very long time. We've seen this multi-trillion dollar shift from working Americans, tax dollars going to not the 1%, but the 1% of the 1%. Even in the stimulus bills that were passed, there's huge amounts of money going to businesses and to individuals, tax benefits and direct support. You know, we're, we're offering Americans at best $1,200. So it's, it's completely out of whack. If you look at what uh, countries like Canada and Germany and, and the United Kingdom are doing, they're providing ongoing uh, <clears throat> income support to their people. We've got to do that now in this crisis. Uh, and then we have to look at how do we make sure everybody has health care, quality health care? How do we make sure that people are getting a living wage? How do we make sure that everyone has paid sick leave? Uh, how do we make sure that people have wherewithal to take care of their families and to build lives where they have a little breathing room? Uh, it, it seems to drive the Republicans insane if a working family has a few bucks in their pocket. Uh, if you look at some of the senators, you know, including Rick Scott, uh, you know, they're furious that uh, people are getting an extra, as they put it, $600 in unemployment support for a short period of time. I mean, what's the mindset where that's their priority when there's so much suffering going on? So, So if we, as a party and as candidates, take this opportunity to make the case for a different way of doing business in this country, I think That's what the American people want, and God knows that's what the American people deserve.
1: Well, David, thank you very much. I want to just thank you for everything you're doing here in the campaign and want to say that you're always welcome back here on the podcast, and we will uh, continue to look forward to everything that you're doing, and just uh, stay safe out there, and thank you for coming on.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. look forward to doing this again soon. So I want to welcome
1: Cindy Manier. She's uh, the Democratic candidate for U.S. House District 19 uh, in the primary challenge uh, this November. Cindy, thank you very much for coming on.
3: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So, uh, Cindy, ever since Donald Trump's election in 2016, we've seen women take charge and really lead the way in terms of all facets of society, from politics to the boardroom, even into local activism, where we're seeing local women moms and local leaders really step up and take the take the lead in terms of moving change forward. What do you, what kind of policies are you gonna be promoting and how are you gonna to look to help Southwest Florida women and also women across the country?
3: Absolutely, you know, I was galvanized after the 2016 election and we saw Donald Trump and his misogyny just grow in a century. Um, I had become active um, and had been active in the grassroots. I was working with education and workforce organizations and trying to make. And I really decided that after seeing, especially so inspiring, the young women that came into Congress and in the 100. Uh, 15th Congress, right? 116th Congress, rather. Um, You know, the Squad, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and how much energy uh, and innovation they brought to the Congress. I was really inspired to run and the reasons why I jumped into this race here in 2020 and I really bring to the perspective of women and women's issues the the perspective of being a mom Um, I am also a younger woman who is trying to uh, get into a powerful position and this brings with it some additional challenges but I'm really working to help women uh, make their name for way in this world uh, You know, much in the way that I have been able to and I'm hoping to do for uh, moving forward. So, some of the things that I've been really passionately working on here in Southwest Florida that I want to take to the next level in instituting family friendly policies, making sure that not only government organizations, but private organizations are properly incentivized and subsidized in order to create family friendly workplaces. And this includes things like parental leave and flexible scheduling. sharing and care support. As a mom, this is something that, you know, I know is really important for keeping women into, in the workforce. Um, it's really important for uh, making sure that uh, and time are respected. And one of the, you know, silver linings of coming out of this economic crisis related to the coronavirus is that it seems as though some of these work these flexible working policies are much more in reach than they had been in the past. And I'm very excited about that. And I'm hoping to take some of that momentum and flexibility and start to really, you know, help to design workforces of the future where we can be flexibly working from home. uh, Relatives who may be ill, um, all of which end up being women's burdens. So that's a passion of mine because it's so significant me. Um, but otherwise, as you know, in terms of helping support women's rights, uh, I'm also a big a, a proponent of the Equal Rights Amendment, as well. And I think absolutely 100% women should be in control of their bodies, and we should be able to be healthcare decisions uh, between us and our practitioners. Um, and we shouldn't have any restrictions on those types of services. So I'm somebody who is very staunchly in support of women's rights and freedoms and making sure that we can be healthy and integrated into the workforce because it's important individuals but also macroeconomic development
1: awesome well cindy thank you very much for coming on we really appreciate everything you're doing and that you're uh you're choosing to run and and to run as effectively as you are and hopefully we will uh We will speak to you here again as the campaign continues and uh, just want to encourage everyone to reach out and look out for uh, Cindy Banyer on our website and to do everything that you can to help support all of our candidates here this election. Cindy, thank you very much for coming on.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff, for, uh, for having me on.
1: All right. That concludes our special podcast for this virtual town hall. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Please remember to rate us on Apple, iTunes, and Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. There's only 154 days left in this election, and we need everybody to step up and go out and do something to help make this one a success. We really need you. Hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, so long.